Who do you say that Jesus is? Hope we're going to have fun this morning. If you would, um, please raise your hand if you don't have a Bible with you. We'll get one to you. And if you don't, want one, if you don't have one handy, just put, put your hand up if you don't have one with you, and, and, and we'll pass it out. Um, if you don't have one handy at home or at work or wherever, we invite you to just keep the one we give you. We want you to have uh, God's Word handy to you at all times so that you can read it daily and know it. John Owen said in the Divine Scriptures... There are shallows and there are deeps, shallows where the lamb may wade and deeps where the elephant may swim. Wow. How many of you got up this morning? I got up, I think it's been a while. I got up and I walked down to my, and it was, the sun was out when I walked down to my office. That was cool, huh? Yeah. Until it gets to this evening and it won't be cool anymore. Oh, interesting. Well, if we would turn with me to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. We're going to answer that, that question, who do you say that I am? And what does that mean for us? What did that mean for Jesus? Luke 9, starting in verse 18. It says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old had risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. We'll be on to verse 21. It continues, uh, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Verse 23, he said to all, anyone, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Oh, holy heavenly Father, we, <coughs> we thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you have gathered us together to hear and to meditate upon your word. Father, we submit to you this morning. We give thanks for allowing us to be here and for the worship that we can, that we can project with the other churches here on this hill and, and around the world. God, help us to respond to your word. Help us to resist the urge to walk away unchanged. God, be present with us this morning as we dig into your scriptures. We invite your Holy Spirit to be in this place, to shake us to our very core, and to change us, and to transform us, and to move us, and to draw us into holy worship. And so God, we give this time over to you, and we open our hearts to hear 
your voice. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Last week, you may remember, I mentioned the Enlightenment. Uh, you mentioned theological liberalism, the quest for the historical Jesus, and how those things affected how wide swaths of people, including many professing Christians in their churches, would see Jesus. I mentioned some of the theories that they had about last week's text, the event we saw of the feeding of the 5,000, since they, they would often propose that Jesus could not possibly have performed any real physical miracles. The Enlightenment was a so-called intellectual movement in the late 17th and 18th centuries that rejected what they considered to be traditional myths in favor of modern scientific discoveries. You know, discoveries like spontaneous generation of life, which they observed because they saw a mud puddle and then a few days later there were tadpoles in it. They must have just come spontaneously and so they were more enlightened. Um, anyhow, uh, the uh, Enlightenment period thought led to theological liberalism that emerged from early 19th century German Enlightenment thought. Uh, and theological liberalism accepted modern secular ideas and sought to align their religious worldview with the intellectual beliefs of their time. The quest for the historical Jesus emerged from, a theological, from theological liberalism, and it began with a book using that title uh, that was written by a guy by the name of Albert Schweitzer. Uh, it was published in 1906. The quest for the historical Jesus sought to discover what words and actions attributed to Jesus actually occurred since the Bible in Schweitzer's mind was a historically unreliable religious work. This worldview rejected the feeding of the 5,000 and proposed that there, were a lot, there, was, there was a lot more food to go around uh, and that the point was that rich people are encouraged here by this little boy's unselfish example, and uh, they shared their own lunches, so his lunch was only multiplied figuratively. I also proposed that Jesus only appeared to walk on water, didn't actually do it. He was near the shore, and there was a mist that created the illusion. Another one, Lazarus was buried alive in a comatose state on accident. And Jesus didn't actually raise him from the dead, but just saved his life because he had been buried alive. Uh, and, and also, another one, Jesus wasn't dead on the cross, but rather unconscious. And then he awakened in the cool of the tomb, kind of like the swoon. Anybody hear, has anybody heard of the swoon theory? Yeah, some of us here. Uh, and, and, and it's... Just absurd to the highest degree. You, uh, here's my challenge to any of you that might think the swoon theory or any of this might be logical. You get beaten to the point where bones and organs are showing. Then nailed through the carpal nerve, which would paralyze your hand, and then speared through the heart. And then in the black of this tomb where you are wrapped up kind of like a mummy, unwrap yourself and fold the wrappings neatly behind you. And then in the pitch blackness of the tomb, find the stone and lift it up with your paralyzed hands, which by the way, can't move, be moved from the inside, uh, out of its little chase and out of the way. And then walk naked past several Roman guards who are guarding the tomb under penalty of death. Yeah, nice try, right? 
Doesn't work. Okay, the quest for the historical Jesus begins with some presuppositions. An existentialist worldview, rejection of the supernatural, uh, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith are completely different. Um, the Gospels are theological but not historical documents, and the Gospel writers were not eyewitnesses. And the idea is that what we read in the Gospels are events that are embellished by early Christian communities. And they reduce what can be known about Jesus to these things. He came from Nazareth. He was Nazareth. He was baptized by John. He preached and told parables about the kingdom of God. He viewed the king. His uh, he viewed this kingdom as coming in the near future and perhaps as already being present in some sense. He performed or believed uh, was believed rather to have performed exorcisms and healings. He gathered a group of disciples around him. He associated with outcasts and sinners. He challenged the Jewish leaders of the day. And he was arrested and charged with blasphemy and sedition. And then lastly, he was crucified by the Romans. And that's all we, we can know according to the, this viewpoint about Jesus. The quest for the historical Jesus generally denied that Jesus ever really thought of himself as Messiah. In our our text today, it addresses the question of who Jesus is and what that would mean for him and his followers. And it's important to note that even in many Christian churches today that propose to be biblically rooted in Christian thought and in the Bible, the identity of Jesus has been marginalized by uh, the uh, neo-intellectual movements of the last 300 years. And so I, I pray this morning that as we dig into these things, that you may be certain of who Jesus is, that you would be willing to give yourself to him in every way. Luke 9.18. You'll keep your finger there in Luke all morning. We're going to hang out in Luke 9. We'll skip in a, into a few other places, but keep your finger there in Luke 9. Now it happened... As he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, we don't, we don't know how much time has passed since the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, they've traveled some distance from Bethsaida. They're going to head out to Jerusalem. We know they're headed that way, but first they go up north. Um, according to Matthew, they're in Caesarea Philippi, which is, you can see, a bit north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's about 45 miles north of Bethsaida, uh, where they had fed the 5,000. Now, the location isn't all that important, nor is the time. What's important is that the theme goes along with what we have covered in the last few weeks. Luke 9, 7. So go back a few verses. Uh, we had run across Herod. Do you remember this? It says, now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. The disciples had been sent out by Jesus for the first time. They go uh, out preaching and healing in towns and villages. Accounts of Jesus are spreading. Remember, there's all kinds of miracles. Jairus' daughter had been raised from the dead. Uh, it's all very newsworthy stuff that's taking place, right? And the disciples are going out and spreading this. Now, kids, you know this, right? My kids hate watching the news. Anybody have kids that love the news, right? Um, no. 
But I do remember as a kid in the 80s watching the news. You remember the walk-in killer? Remember that guy? Someplace they called him the, the Night Stalker. I think that's how he's pretty much known now. But the walk-in killer, right? And news starts spreading about him. And, and he's all anybody's talking about. The walk-in killer. Uh, and, and, and everyone in the neighborhood's talking about the walk-in killer. And the kids at school are talking about him. The teachers at school are talking about him. I remember my, my, my mom putting all, all kinds of little locks on all the windows in the house. Even the upstairs windows, I think. And, and that was when I first started watching the news with my dad because everybody was talking about it. I wanted to know what's going on. Walking killers out there. He's killing everybody, right? Everybody's talking about it. And, and it affected how, how we all lived, right? Yeah, we're, yeah, right here in California, it affected how we all lived. Uh, it, you know, we kept our garages shut. Uh, we locked all our doors. We didn't play outside unless the, the, uh, the neighborhood dads were out there with us. And I'll, and I'll never forget, down one, uh, forget sitting down one night with my dad to watch the news. And I saw the coverage of Richard Ramirez. The people in a neighborhood found him up north, and they just beat the tar out of him. And then he's being put into a police car. Do you remember seeing that? That was big news, right? It's the first major news story I remember as a kid. Jesus is asking here the disciples a question. And, and what he's doing here is setting up to ask an even more important question. But the thing is, everybody's talking about Jesus. Right? Everybody's talking about him. And everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Verse 19 says, They answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets of old, has risen. This is how the people are, are identifying Jesus. It's identical to what Herod was told. I find it curious that after the three options given, Herod still asks who Jesus is, kind of as if he's not satisfied. I, I, I don't know. I also find it curious that nobody guessed correctly even after all that Jesus had done. I find that interesting. Problem is that the Jews at the time were fixed on the Davidic Messiah and had not considered the Isianic Messiah narrative. Also, so they were waiting for Messiah to come in as a conquering king, which is part of the message that we do believe, but they neglected that he would come in as a suffering servant. It would make sense that these two narratives, that the Messiah would suffer before assuming the throne. It wouldn't be all that logical to assume that he would assume the throne and then suffer. That would be weird. So here's the thing. These people, the Jewish people, were dedicated to scripture memorization. And if people that were dedicated to memorizing large sections of scripture could make that mistake, we also need to be careful not to assume that we have all the details of his second coming all figured out to the point that we end up missing him if he looks different than we expect him to. You see, Jesus didn't look like the Messiah that they were expecting, so they missed it. They guessed everything but Messiah. I wonder how many of us, if Jesus was sitting in this room right now, wouldn't recognize him. 
All the people have their opinions about Jesus, but how important are the opinions of others when it comes to who Jesus is? Verse 20. Then he said to them, his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus now poses the operative question to his followers. Who do you say that I am? And when it comes to who I say Jesus is, what, what should be the role of the opinions of the masses? The historical accuracy, in fact, of Mark's account today uh, is hotly disputed by liberal scholars. This is what it says. It says Luke, eight, uh, this, or I'm sorry, this is in Mark 8, 27 to 30. Mark 8, 27 to 30. It says, and, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do, the, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. Now the quest for the historical Jesus denies that Jesus ever thought of himself as Messiah. This view and all of the presuppositions that we addressed before are not Christian views in any real sense of the word. But all of these ideas heavily drive progressive theology or theological liberalism today. One of the driving forces for that is that if we can call into question what Christ taught in the Bible, we can also call into question traditional biblical morality. And a huge part of that deals with sexual morality. Because we, we naturally... All of us want to justify and pursue whatever sexual appetites and curiosities that we have. It's particularly prevalent in churches now because we want to break down as many walls as we can, right? Uh, with, with, the, with the present culture. And so the, the impulse to apologize or to be ashamed of the scriptures is leading to the acceptance of a lot of unbiblical things in a lot of churches, during our soccer season here, I was, I was watching our kids' soccer practice at the Idlewild School over here, and I had to go use the restroom. And so I went down the little stairs and go over to the restroom, and I should not have been caught off guard, but I was caught off guard when I walked into the men's room to see a feminine hygiene product dispenser for the menstruating boys in our school. This is the culture that we live in. And while the Bible has called us to be salt and light and to speak truth into our culture, many progressives end up allowing the culture to define the worldviews of the church. And we have to understand that both liberals and agnostics are basically making the same argument against biblical Christianity. In the end, theological liberalism is functional agnosticism. At least the agnostics are honest about it and don't try to call it something that it's not. Everybody's talking about who Jesus is back then. Everybody's talking about who Jesus is today. It really is true. I recall many years ago watching Brian Williams do a special on, on some of the ideas that Dan Brown had. You remember Dan Brown? 
Uh, he used a lot of these ideas for a science fiction novel that he called The Da Vinci Code. You remember that one? Right? Uh, Dan Brown got a lot of his ideas from conspiracy theories that were actually rooted in the quest for the historical Jesus. But these theories propose things like the Roman Catholic Church has hidden the truth about who Jesus really was since making him out to be the second person of the Trinity and the Jewish Messiah gave them all kinds of power. And the Illuminati is this ancient group who's sworn to protect all these secrets and keep the Pope in power. Now, even if you have a seething hatred for the Roman Catholic Church, that's just ridiculous, you guys. It really is. It's absurd. One One of the primary hidden truths is that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a secret romance right? Leonardo da Vinci was, was, was in on these secrets. He, he was in on the Illuminati, right? And, and the, in his painting, The Last Supper, the one closest to Jesus, no, that's not John. That's actually Mary Magdalene. And then the descendants of their illegitimate offspring are still running around France today. This is weird, but that, people believe this stuff. Never mind that Mary was substantially older than Jesus and maybe postmenopausal by the time, time they met. But I don't, I don't, at, the end, at the end of Brian Williams' special, be ready to laugh here. At the end of Brian Williams' special, he admitted that there's absolutely no historical data that would come even close to affirming any little bit of it in any way whatsoever. But that's the Jesus he chooses to put his faith in because that's the version he likes best. Oh, of course it is, Bri Bri. That's why you don't have that way you don't have to acknowledge your sin, right? Or acknowledge your lies. Right? You remember that? You're supposed to laugh at that. That was there you go. Uh, P- Peter's now faced with this with this question. Uh, ev- everyone else had an opinion. H- how important were those opinions to Peter? Would Peter get a pass if he just went with the crowd? Like, would God excuse us for getting it wrong because everyone else gets it wrong? Why? Because a popular lie is still a lie. Peter here confesses a truth that he observed. You are the Christ of God. Christon tu theu. The word Christon is a Greek translation for Messiah or anointed one. And Jesus calling the anointed one of Uh, or rather calling Jesus the anointed one of God, emphasizes God's purposes being fulfilled in Christ. It's not not certain that the disciples understood all of the implications of, of Peter's confession. So there are some consequences to that which Jesus would have to begin explaining and continue to unfold as Luke continues his gospel. Here's how Matthew records Peter's confession. I like this. And, you know, um, in, in the scriptures, the different accounts don't have to be worded exactly the same. They're recalling what they saw. This is what it says in Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But what's profound about this, particularly considering that Matthew's emphasis was on Davidic kingship, Uh, of Jesus over Israel, to his audience, which was largely composed of Jewish Christians, this is how Jesus responds. Look at this. This is huge. 
And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Pretty, pretty blatant right there. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Some scholars would end this section in Luke um, with verse 20. Uh, so it would go, that section would be uh, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 20. And Peter's confession would be the climax. It would be a pretty good place to end a section. But, but here's the thing. The next two parts we're going to see directly deal with the consequences of Peter's confession. And so let's move on to that. Uh, Verse 21, Luke 9, 21. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I think that because they had not fully understood the implications of his identity, and because it wasn't yet time for him to go to the cross, he he wanted to keep things quiet, let things unfold organically as they were supposed to here. The ESV study Bible suggests that just outing him as Messiah at this point would be misunderstood in light of the Jewish uh, nationalistic expectation that uh, Messiah... Uh, of Messiah, rather, and it would force him into uh, too much of a political role. But the mandate here is to tell no one, and it's connected directly. Uh, it's co- connected rather to the consequences of his identity to him, what his consequences would be. So I really think that this was a timing thing as much as anything. Now Peter's confession turns. The attention to Luke's narrative, or the attention of Luke's narrative, rather, to the anticipation of Christ's coming passion. So, just like we have Advent, right? We have that Advent season. It's good to celebrate that. It's very kind of a very old tradition, but it anticipates his coming. And so we look forward to Christmas. We think about it on a daily basis, right? We have all kinds of traditions that we do that that point us to Jesus. Well, some of them point us to Santa and other things, but but but. We, we do that. Right? We, as Christians, we, we take that time to remember uh, and to anticipate Christmas and the coming of Jesus. Uh, we're also free to observe, if we so choose, the Lenten season uh, as an anticipation of the passion. Uh, his arrest, his death, his burial, his resurrection that we're talking about right here, right? It's, it's a good thing to reflect on. What if you start 40 days beforehand, right? Uh, uh, maybe you would begin a fast from something like, okay, caffeine, Somebody suggested bacon last time. I don't know if that's possible. But fast from something fast from something like caffeine beginning on maybe February 22nd. And maybe you were to try something like that. And every time you crave coffee or you smell coffee uh, or you see Chris Bayer with his Black Mountain Roasters, hat, and every time it, you have that, it would, it would be a reminder, it would be a trigger for you to remember the betrayal 
and the suffering and the death of Christ and to pray in repentance. Imagine you spend 40 days, that, that time up to that piece, not counting Sundays, up to the passion, thinking through those things. And then as you break your fast on April 6th, or you could do it the 7th or 8th, April 6th is the Thursday leading to Easter, there would be some kind of special meeting. So remember, imagine April 6th, you come in and you walk into Black Mountain Coffee Roasters, and Chris is in there, and you smell it, all right? And he does the pour over, because he doesn't use a percolator. Those things make horrible coffee. You got to do the the pour over, according to Chris, and you come in and you get that coffee and it's the first time you've had a cup of coffee in a while. And, and, and then, and then you're, you're reflecting on the suffering and what it accomplished on your behalf as you attend your Good Friday services and your Easter services and you remember the passion with your family. That's a, that's a good thing you could do. You could do anything. It's not, you don't have to follow any kind of tradition or anything. But the, the point is, is that we're talking about the passion. And Jesus is already talking about this long before it happens, right? It's important to reflect upon what is going to take place. Matthew's gospel is more explicit, but even here in Luke, Jesus doesn't reject Peter's confession that he's the Christ. But here, his affection for humanity emerges as he prefers the title Son of Man. I think that's quite special, quite honestly. What needs to unfold here is that there are two primary messianic missions. Now, the Jews were primarily concerned, like I said, with the Davidic part, which was to restore David's throne and reign on it forever. That would be Messiah as conquering king. But Isaiah includes a lot of prophetic material pointing to Messiah as suffering servant. Suffering servant, super important, right? Uh, And he would be betrayed and persecuted for the sins of his people. And so Jesus begins to point that out here because it wasn't what the people, including the disciples, would have been thinking when they thought of Messiah. And of course, we know that many Jews later use their political expectations to indict him. They accuse him of doing the very thing that they expected and wanted Messiah to do in order to get him arrested and crucified. That's dirty, right? Seriously, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, they're, they're unified in their opposition to Jesus. We're going to see that coming up. Now, another criticism of the theological liberals is that Jesus could not have predicted his own death and certainly not his resurrection, you know, because it never happened, right? Uh, again, this is right in line with agnosticism. The argument is that the Gospels were written hundreds of years after the events occurred which is becoming really difficult to do since we're finding fragments of those Gospels uh, and we're discovering huge, a huge number of manuscript fragments that date to within almost 50 years from the original if they were actually written by eyewitnesses, which, by the way, they were. Uh, if someone could predict their own death, burial, and resurrection and then pull it off, that's a guy you follow, Right? Seriously, the disciples may not have understood resurrection theology at this point, but this is where we see a a well-mapped plan of salvation unfolding. But here's the thing. Peter's confession not only implied consequences for Jesus, 
death, burial, resurrection. Right? Did not only implied consequences for Jesus, but also for those who will follow him. Verse 23. And he said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The custom in the Roman Empire was to require the condemned to carry the crossbar uh, to that instrument of their own execution where they were to be crucified. Now, the image that we often see of Jesus carrying that fully intact cross with both vertical and horizontal crossbars, uh, uh, you know, across, that's probably not all that accurate. Usually the vertical beam would already be in the ground. And the condemned would carry the horizontal beam that to the, the location of the vertical beam where they would then be attached to it either by rope or whatever or by nailing through the wrists or hands. Be the wrists because otherwise it would just slip right out. Um, but um, the, the hand actually is, refers to from the fingertip to the elbow in that language. So, um, But anyhow, uh, it, it was very common. This was a very common thing for people to see, somebody carrying the crossbar to be crucified. Uh, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, but this whole thing, take up your cross, was probably more of an idiom, uh, kind of like put your head on the chopping block or lay it all out on the line, right? Jesus said that the one who would follow him must deny himself, take up his cross, what? Daily. It's a daily commitment. It's a daily commitment to confess the Lord Jesus and to lay it all on the line for him. Whatever it costs, we will follow him. And he continues, for whatever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? A word for life can refer to the soul, uh, one's self or one's inner life, right? Uh, in other words, our calling to deny ourselves, that doesn't mean that we don't enjoy life or the things that God's provided for us, but that our lives are not what we live for. We're, we're to reject the moniker, be true to yourself. The world tells us be true to yourself means don't worry about pleasing other people, living by someone else's standards or rules. You know, you don't care what people think of you. You, you live as your natural self without compromise. No one can tell you how to be true to yourself except for you. Uh, that's what the world teaches. But since Jesus cares enough for us to die for us, his desire is that we get over ourselves and be true to him. Let him worry about us. Amen? We identify with the sufferings of Christ when we're willing to suffer alongside of him. When we look forward to that time when we will reign forever with him where there's no suffering and no pain. John, John Nolan said, this call is to practic a practical denial of our, inner, our natural inner drive to self-preservation and care for our own interest. Ultimately, you know, there is no eternal benefit to looking out for number one. When was the last time that you saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer? You can't take it with you. You can accumulate all you want in this life. And in fact, on its, in and of itself, that's not even sin. But you can't take it with you. 
There are no earthly riches that can secure you from the loss of your life. You will be separated from what you accumulate. So why then would we place our earthly possessions and passions and comfort above laying it all down for Jesus? It's a warning. Beware. The goods this world has to offer can be a trap to keep us from total surrender. Mark 10.25 says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This goes for all of our earthly appetites. Why do you think that anyone who has rejected the biblical view of sexuality defines their identity by their sexuality? It places a barrier between them and God's truth. Who I am is not consistent with following God and therefore I cannot. Our passions and our possessions compete for our affections and then our devotion to Christ becomes just a badge that we wear instead of defining every bit of who we are. Verse 26 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. How many of us are comfortable with everything that the Bible teaches? We have these tendencies to make excuses, to apologize for the scripture because we're embarrassed about how it conflicts with our culture. Our culture is offended by God's truth, so we apologize for it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Don't apologize for the truth! Don't be ashamed of God's word! Don't be embarrassed about Jesus! I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I've said this, I've said... I wish the Bible didn't say that. No, I'm glad the Bible says it because it's true. And it's truer than any other truth. I love God's words because it is living and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. I'm not sorry for what the Bible says. I'm sorry you don't like it because it has the power to transform lives and cultures. I wish the Bible didn't say that. Try again, Christian. I Never, never be ashamed of Christ or his words. You don't need to be embarrassed about God. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then Paul also said to Timothy, he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. This is what Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace with which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed, appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know 
whom I have believed, I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Imagine on that day, you stand before Jesus. There he is, surrounded by a council of angels. And you stand there, and you see somebody go before you. Oh, oh, I, I'm not ashamed of this one, Father. And then you walk up, and you stand there, and Jesus looks at you, and he looks at the angels, and he looks at his father. And his father says, what will you say about this one, Jesus? And he looks back at you, back at the angels, back at the father. He says, I'm ashamed of this one. Christian, your faith is not a membership card in a club. It isn't part of your life. It isn't something you keep to yourself. Your identity isn't, if your identity, if your identity isn't in Christ first and foremost, you need to ask if you're even a Christian at all. When I baptize people, I remind them of the implications that baptism was for the early Christians. You could be persecuted, even put to death for it. When you got baptized, you, said, you were saying, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And you could die for it. You could suffer for it. And so I tell them that if they would not be willing to die for their decision to be baptized, don't even bother getting wet. And you know what? Just a few weeks ago, five people, even young people, made that confession. That's exciting. Verse 27 says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It's a tough one to understand. Uh, it, it does point to the end times in some way, but how? I... Because the disciples are all dead now and Jesus yet has yet to return to resume David's throne and set up his kingdom. Jesus is dealing here actually with the transfiguration, which we're going to read about in a few weeks. It's, and what that is, is it's, it's a preview of God's reign and of the hope of those who will lay their lives down for Jesus. Oh, I'm excited to get into that. I hope you are too. What consequences? What consequences would you not be willing to face for the sake of Jesus? Would you lose your job? Would you lose all your stuff, your status? Would you lose your friends? Would you be estranged from your family? Would you lose your life? Would you lose your children? Would you lose your whole life for Jesus and then live in him? This morning we're going to look upon Christ's suffering on our behalf as we move on in the service. Jesus said that he must suffer. Not that he might suffer, not that he should suffer, not that he, that he could suffer, but that he must suffer. 
And the reason that he must is because from the moment Adam sinned in the garden, God has held to a plan of salvation that included blood because his warning was that disobedience to that one rule, do not eat of the tree, would result in death. And so Jesus died so that we may have life. The blood of animals could never atone for sin. Only the blood of our perfect God could atone for our sin. And that is why the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that he might die in our place. So if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, we ask that you would allow this to pass you by rather than facing the judgment of, of receiving in an unworthy Manner. But if you would look upon the bread, which represents the body of our Lord who suffered and was beaten on your behalf. And if you would look upon the cup, which points to the blood, which was poured out as his life left him for your sake. If you would lose your life for his sake, would you receive this with great repentance and joy, this Lord's Supper in his name? Let's pray. Our holy God, we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I pray, Father, that each one in this holy place would be ready to make that confession, to give their lives to it, or may we be faithful to lose our lives, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus and be willing to suffer on his behalf. Thank you for the cross where you conquered sin and paid the price so that we could know you. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive your communion that is set before us. Thank you that Jesus has removed our unbearable weight of sin has called us to take up our cross and to follow him. Thank you that by your incredible grace, the blood of Jesus was poured out on that wretched, beautiful cross. Lord, humble us now as we prepare our hearts to receive this holy feast in the name of Jesus, Messiah, Son of the living God, our Lord and Savior.